Upon his return from Vietnam, my husband, Brian Murray, joined the NYPD bomb squad. Uh, a bomb was left in Grand Central Station by terrorists, and at the same time, they hijacked a plane out of LaGuardia Airport. There was a bomb on the plane, as well as the one in Grand Central. So it was imperative that the bomb squad take apart that bomb so they could tell the Parisian police where the plane had landed, what the makings of the bomb were. When they took the bomb from Grand Central to the pit in New York City, the bomb exploded unexpectedly and it killed my husband. So it's the story of the crime, what happened. It is the story of the terrorists. Welcome to the Lifelines podcast brought to you by the Brooklyn Writers Project. I'm Marina Aris. And I'm Diane Fenner. And we're your hosts. This is the podcast for book creators, book lovers, and literary ambassadors. Join us each week as we explore the writing life, the art, and the business of creating great books. Hello and welcome. Today we have Kathleen Murray Moran. She is the author of Life Detonated, the true story of a widow and a hijacker. I met Kathleen at Book Expo 2017 and she was kind enough to sign this lovely book for me. And I've been holding on to it, waiting for this very moment for Diane and I to sit with her and to have her on the show so that we can tell this very important and loving and moving story that's we're just so lucky to have come across. So thank you so much for being with us, Kathleen. Yes, you, you are welcome. Much. I'm delighted to be here. And it has been quite a journey, writing the book and selling the book. Um, it's all new to me. I was a teacher of writing for about 25 years, college level. And so I wrote for myself, for my classes. But when it came to writing a book, I actually had to retire and do it full time to make it work because writing is rewriting. So I probably rewrote this book 100 times. <laughs> 100 times. How, how, how much time did it take you to write this book? It took three years. Three years. Three years writing the book after, of course, I already had the story because it was my story. But a strange thing happened, and it happened on 9-11-2001. I was teaching, and uh, the week after we held our first class, and I asked my class to write about their experience on that day. Where were they? What were they doing? So it was a three-hour class, and so they wrote for a long time, and I was watching them, and they were emotional, and they were talking with each other, and I thought, I wonder what they would think if they knew my 9-11 story. So I penned a sketch for the first time, because I actually never talked about it. It upset me. It gave me... It made me shake whenever I mentioned it. So I sketched it out, and when everyone was finished reading, I read my story. And the room was silent, and then one woman said, oh my God, what a story. And that's when I knew that what I was writing really wasn't as powerful as my 9-11 story. So then I included it in the book. Because before that, the story was me and my family. Go ahead and tell the readers the short summary of the narrative so they know the events that you're referring to. Upon his return from Vietnam, my husband, Brian Murray, joined the NYPD 
bomb squad. Uh, a bomb was left in Grand Central Station by terrorists, and at the same time, they hijacked a plane out of LaGuardia Airport. There was a bomb on the plane, as well as the one in Grand Central. So it was imperative that the bomb squad take apart that bomb so they could tell the Parisian police where the plane had landed, what the makings of the bomb were. When they took the bomb from Grand Central to the pit in New York City, the bomb exploded unexpectedly and it killed my husband. So it's the story of the crime, what happened. It is the story of the terrorists. It is the story of how the NYPD refused to tell me why the bomb exploded or what happened. And so that when one of the terrorists, the wife, said that she would tell me what happened if I wrote to her, I did. So this is our story. Yours and the wife of the person who murdered your husband. Right. Well, she was part of it. Um, did you ever get an official version uh, from NYPD, or to this day, are they still refusing to tell you? There is no official version. There is none, right? There is none. Even though they do take a lot of notes. They know what happened, but it's <laughs> yeah. not written anywhere. Right. It's when you say that you're asking those questions, is that technical? I mean, you do know that this was a weapon that was expected to explode, and it did. What in particular would it tell you to know the more technical reason? When a bomb explodes and it's a contained environment, like the pit, the bomb squad knows exactly what happened. They have every grain of sand. They examine every single aspect of it, and they come to a conclusion. There has never been a time in the seven years Brian was on the bomb squad that there was no conclusion. And that was in, let's say, Francis Tavern or TWA Terminal, some of the bigger jobs that he had. They know how it exploded. That's their job. And this, uh, you call it the pit? P-I-T? Yes. What, as a spouse, how much were you allowed to know about the pit? <laughs> well, I, I knew about the pit because it was in Pelham Bay Park in the Bronx, which is where I grew up. So I always knew of it. I didn't know what happened there. I didn't know that it was the largest range and that they stored military weapons and it was where they brought um, Fourth of July fireworks. So I did know that about it because my husband would collect fireworks from the various precincts who had confiscated them and he would always say, I'm bringing them to the pit. <laughs> so that's how much I knew about it. Right. I've never actually been there. Well, first of all, let me say I'm very sorry for your loss. Thank and you. I think everyone is very grateful to your husband. Yeah, and I cried. Within, and this is the thing that struck me about the book, is that I um, was very emotional right away, within a number of pages. And um, it really surprised me. Not, you know, I knew that it would be a moving story. We're, we know going in that we're talking about a loss. We're talking about something mm -hmm. that affected many people, right? But um, typically, it takes a while to hit that emotional chord, but you got to it, like, right away. I mean, I, I'm sure, how, how was that for you? I mean, in the sense that I think the reason that happened for me as a reader is because you showed up on the page in a very raw and honest way. But when you were writing, 
how do you think you came to being able to relay your story in that way? Was it journalistic, like if you were writing in a journal, or? No, it was emotional, because I would write a short scene, and I tried to keep them very short, so that I could go back into the scene over and over again, until I got to the raw emotional part of it, to the real basis of what it was I wanted to portray in that scene. And many times it took a lot of tears and a lot of wine to get to the very bottom. <laughs> sure. So that I myself, I you know, is emotional for me, but when I would ask someone to read it, read this, tell me what you think. Oh my God, it's so emotional. So right. then I knew, then you, I knew you were hitting the, the chord. So that was what I was striving for. So the event was September 11th of 1976. And you first put pen to paper on? 2001. And is that because you simply couldn't be ready to um, step away from your own grief and what you were going through? Yes. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's pretty remarkable that, that all of us have stories, and sometimes we don't know how, how true our stories are or how, how wonderful they are to tell because we keep them secret, we keep them locked away, which is what I had done until that day. And once I started to talk about it, of course I got nervous and upset. But when I put it on the page, that was cathartic and that's where it stayed. And then I was able to go forward with the story. Well, you are, in a sense, a professional. I mean, you're certainly a trained writer as a, as a teacher of writing. Yes. Would, would you generalize that to other people? Is there something therapeutic in trying to sit down with pen and paper after um, a great loss like this, or does it vary from person to person? I think it varies from person to person, but I think it is one of the easiest, simplest, and most therapeutic ways of working through your pain, your grief, of moving forward. Because for me, once it's on the page, I actually look at the page and know there it is. Yeah, if I may, I wanted to read just a, a few lines from the prologue because I, I think you did such a beautiful job in expressing something that we all tend to experience at one time or another when we're dealing with loss. So this is from the prologue, um, and I think we can then unpack it, as Diane likes to say. Okay, so here we go. Um, they say the grief that comes with death doubles back on you, makes you mourn again all those past disappointments and tiny deaths you never had the chance to fully reconcile. But what I've come to wonder is if death might be a birthing room, a gift. It is a sad and heartbreaking gift, and yet the aftermath of death allows us to understand the tenacity and fortitude of the human spirit. It may be true to say we are presented again and again with small deaths, hijackings perhaps, chances to either lie down and surrender or be reborn again. I was Thank so, you. and this is before I started crying. <laughs> I was so Thank incredibly moved. How beautiful is that? I want to unpack that because I think that we all tell our stories and sometimes when we tell our stories we're saying, well this happened, then that happened, then that happened. But when we get past all of the this and that and that and that, what we have is a root, right? A, a basis from which the story is really born. And I think that those few lines in the prologue mm -hmm. are, are setting us up for what this is really about. And so beautifully and done. It's not only that, but it's in, inspirational, 
hopeful yes. way to approach a topic that the minute any of us hears, our hearts sink. And so to have injected it with something that liberating is quite an achievement. I'm, I'm sure it didn't come easily. It didn't come easily. Actually, it didn't come at all until I had finished the book. Is that when you <laughs> And when I finished writing all of, I, I write by scene. So when I had, you know, probably a hundred scenes, I thought, well, now how am I going to bring these all together? What is my common thread? Right. So I, I reread and read it and I thought, hijacking. So I had the, the last words first. And so I wrote hijack on the top of the page. And then I just went through every single chapter and I inserted the theme, not necessarily the word, Got it. of being hijacked. Got so it. you'll feel it throughout. And then I thought, well, now I have to bring it forward so that I can give the hint that this is what the book is really about. I was hijacked by a terrorist. My husband was hijacked by two terrorists. My mother was hijacked by our father, and so on. And we are all hijacked in many different ways. And sometimes it takes an unpacking to get there, to find out what that is. But once you do, it's freedom. Spoken like a true teacher of writing. <laughs> so oh. we are all hijacked. I really don't want to let this go um, until I hear a little bit more. We are all hijacked all day long by, oh my God, you know, I need to stop and get coffee. I'm almost, you know, at my train, blah, 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 all day long. And when you talk about freedom, how did you connect those dots? I mean, what did you hold on to as your center that wasn't subject to falling apart because of the horrendous loss, that wasn't subject to becoming exhausted because you still had to raise children and carry on, yes. that wasn't subject to a million other, to, to, to just, you know, succumbing to the hijacking. I mean, how, what was that thread that you held on to? The thread was growth, and I think it is how you can grow from being hijacked. And when I met with the hijacker in person was when I finally realized that I actually had been hijacked. And so I grew from that. I became strong from that. Um, I was able to free myself from her restraints because we had been writing together for three years. And during that time, I was under her spell, but I never knew it because I needed her. I wanted her. She was my link to that Brian stronghold. She was the one who I could turn to and say anything to. And then she would write back in such reassuring ways. So her letters became for me a salvation. And when I finally saw her in person and realized that I had been manipul manipulated, and what she really wanted. And I'm not going to tell you that because you have to read the book. Um, it's when I realized that I was stronger than the hijacker. Yeah, and, and I think that I would assume part of that realization was that you're also angry. <laughs> I would imagine you were pretty angry at some point. You're like, wait a minute, you mean to tell me? No, I, I, I can, because I, I think we all have to get to the point where it hurts enough or angers us enough that we're forced to make a, a turn in our lives, right? And Do I don't think you can um, recover until you are sort of at the bottom, as they say. 
right. you know, until you've, rock bottom. until you've hit rock bottom and realize I'm stronger, I'm better. But let's not get But you really so are. Soon. You really are stronger. Because <laughs> we, a lot, many people hit rock bottom and some people, as you know, stay there. Mm -hmm. So you have to give yourself a bit more credit. I don't think it's just a, a consequence that just comes. You really are a much stronger person. Well, thank you. You know, I grew up in a family with seven siblings, so we had to fight for everything. There you go. There you go. <laughs> so I think that's what gave me my, my foundation of strength. Were you the youngest? Or middle. You're middle. You're right in the middle. Oh, I can Number just four. imagine that. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious. Sides. Why you didn't immediately hate this woman? So what was it that drew you into the correspondence with her without, you know, just wanting to make her pay and with being so open? I did want to make her pay, and I was very angry. And the reason that I corresponded with her was, was many-fold, but it was several years after the event, so I had time to process. I think it took me about five years before I stopped crying in my car. And, and after that, I became stronger. And by the time she wrote to me, I was standing on my own two feet. So I had a good job and I had a new husband and I was moving on with my life. It wasn't all about being hijacked. It wasn't all about my husband's death. It was about me. I had become educated and I had, um, I had a future. So then when she wrote to me, it, it did bring me back, but it was tempting and she was intriguing. She was very brilliant, brilliant woman. We had a lot of things in common, not, not brilliance, but. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, not brilliance, yes. <laughs> we, we were born the same year, married the same year. We had the same degrees. Um, we worked a few blocks from each other in, right here in New York City. What so a twist of fate, huh? It really was. And so I identified with her in some very strange way. And as you'll find out in the book, I have a sister, Gracie, who is a heroin addict. And, and Gracie spent time in prison. And I always felt akin somehow because I loved Gracie so much that there was something about this woman that I related to. Right. It's so, almost like the caretaker and you recognized that perhaps... Right. If she wasn't a manipulative person, she was someone who needed you just as much. And, and that in essence, even though she was not the one who lost a spouse, you both were suffering something relative, right? Well, that's true. You both had a loss. Mm -hmm. Different sides of the same coin, in essence. Yeah, I see that. And having had a sister who had um, sort of given away her life to a drug, you were able to see past... Um, people's lack of success and not blame them for it and see them as maybe the victims of... Exactly. So you saw her maybe as a victim? I, you know, she told me that she was an unwilling participant and that she was afraid not to go because she thought she would never see her husband again. And she thought she could be a calming force on the plane. She acted as hostess which is very, it's bizarre, but she did, she was able to keep the passengers calm. 
so she played a role in it. And I thought she had information about the bombing and the bomb, and I wanted to know it. I was desperate to know. Yeah, I guess, yes, curiosity so, can certainly... Do you, you think, do you have a theory? You think something was covered up, and do you have a theory I know, as to what it might have to I know, do but with? I don't know who exactly covered it up. I think it went all the way to the top, to the commissioner. But why would they cover it up? Because I believe that the NYPD was ultimately responsible. Right, so it was no longer the terrorist's fault. Right. And that was part of Friendly it. fire, sort of, that type of thing. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I sued the city of New York, and so I couldn't blame both the terrorist and the city. Right. Right. I get that. I could. <laughs> well, she's an attorney, so Diane's an attorney by trade. Um, but so. I, I traffic in blaming people entirely too much, and I have a lot of respect for what you were trying to do. In the end, you stopped seeing her as a victim. Yes. Um, but we don't want to get too much into that. You'd been married to Brian for how long? So we were married eight years. Eight years. That was eight years. So during that time, you must have gone through some scenarios in your mind. I mean, he had a job that was very dangerous. Had you prepared yourself during that time for maybe I'll get a phone call one day? The truth is that he was in uniform before he went on the bomb squad, and those were the times that I was more afraid because it was the 70s and police officers were being gunned down in the street. Sometimes, you know, I think 26 officers were killed in just a few years, and there were two officers in his precinct who were gunned down. And I did not want him to wear the blue uniform. So when he went on to the bomb squad, which he was trained for in, in the Air Force, I felt that it was more of a desk job. Oh, right. That they usually went to a scene after the bomb exploded. And there had not been an incident in, since 1939, so over 30 years. So I just felt that he was safe where he was behind a desk. And he was, he was forensics. They were looking at the causes of things. So he was called in. Um, I know you described the scene in the book, but he was typically called in after whatever had taken place. Is Correct. that what you're saying? Yes. I see. I see. Oh, yeah. So that wouldn't have prepared her at all. I get it. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about what led up to your change of heart, but... I'm ready, I think, to hear more, and I think hopefully the listeners want to know more, too, about the strength that you found. Did you feel like you were moving towards it in increments, or did you suddenly one day just feel entirely different and ready to move ahead? I don't think that I ever feel entirely ready. I still don't. I think <laughs> that something like this, especially when you're NYPD, because they're very involved in my life, and so they keep it alive for me in a good way. Um, I am friends with all of the NYPD widows, and we shoulder each other, and we keep each other strong. So to say that you're over it and that you're ready to move forward, I don't think ever happens. Right. You live with it's it. It's like it. it's part of you. It's like losing any person that you love. You're never right. going to forget that. Right. Right. But but you be, you become able to give advice. I think once you start being able to say, "This is what you can do," and you might feel some relief. That's when you know you're you're processing the grief exactly effectively. Mm -hmm. I didn't 
necessarily mean getting over the grief of losing your husband so much as I was wondering about being free from being hijacked. It feels like you developed some sense of your own strength with regard to staying on course, on the course you select, regardless of distraction, regardless of people who attempt to steal away your attention. And it seems like you felt freer from hijacking mm -hmm. in all of those levels, all of those metaphorical levels. Is that right? It was a very hard lesson. And it was humiliating to think that I had spent all those years bolstering the person who betrayed me. And so once I learned the truth, I became hardened. I think you're right about that. I became less trusting um, and more aware. That seems like a natural consequence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get that. But in terms of going back to um, the hijacking of grief and how we all, I think, again, it's a very universal theme is what I was trying to say earlier. So it feels to me as if, and I've experienced it, I guess if you overcome one adversity or you're hijacked by one adversity, we're, we're none of us, if you think about it, Diane, are actually ever free of a potential hijacking. You're right? never safe from it. No. Right? It's, it can happen to any one of us at any given time, right? Um, Which is, so. I think, why I was hoping to hear what we are meant to hold on to or what lessons we can all absorb because we're all trying to make our way to a defined course without being hijacked and um, I don't think I, we have a choice though and I don't see that's the thing but given this, this scenario that Kathleen has painted I don't really think we have a choice we don't choose our adversity right it just shows up right just like a hijacking happens all of a sudden so maybe um, maybe the idea is that maybe what you want to know Diane is more about so many years have passed and we assume obviously the first few years were the hardest and even today you hold on to some part of that but I guess if, if we can ever unpack <laughs> grief handling yeah, yeah. is there is there a, a set path is there something that you can say to a, another widow that that when you do want to help another widow maybe that's the way to get to it what do you say to them to help them through what comes to mind is um, something that Kate Chopin wrote about in one of her books. And her husband was killed. And she deliberated whether she would want to ever go back in time when he was still alive. And she said yes, but then she would have to have given up her growth. And for me that was all important because I had never had the opportunity to go to college. And so once I earned my degrees and I had a job as a college professor, I knew I couldn't go back. But that growth made me strong, made me who I am. So that you always have to think about the things that you've accomplished that brought you to this place. I like that. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, widows or do you comfort widows or people who are being bereaved? Certainly. Mm -hmm. still surviving? You know, we don't sit down and, and do it as a matter of I'm here to counsel you, but we're just friends. And so we tell each other stories. And certainly my book 
has made an impact. And while I was writing it, I did have those women in mind. And when I gave it to a very new widow, she said, I cried and cried and didn't think that I could read this. But when I got through it, I realized that there is hope. That's great, because I was going to ask you what you what your hope was as a writer. We all have our own motivation for mm -hmm. going through the process, which is grueling sometimes, especially in your case. So um, I, it's good to know that you were writing for those women. Yes. Were, were you writing, although since it was cathartic for you, was that also something that you were looking for when you were writing? Did you think, I'm going to finally face this and writing will be the way that I'm going to make Get to I, don't, I don't think I knew while I was writing it how it would come out. I didn't know the ending. I think a book writes itself. Mm. Um, I certainly have probably another hundred chapters that didn't go into this. Right. Um, so it wasn't until the end and, and actually until I wrote that prologue that I realized this is a book of growth and a book of hope. Okay. That's beautiful. I remember we interviewed a poet, um, Stella Podnos, whose fiance um, made the choice to end his own life and asked her about grieving and she said that if you, she said I think time and people were the two uh, things that got her through, mm -hmm. but she said uh, then life comes back little by little and uh, her, she said what a gift is is to be able to sit with someone um, and not try to fix it, but be with them mm -hmm. right. during their discomfort. Um, that sounds like you. You just help them cry. You know, you just sit with them and and let them and, cry and hold them. Right? Yeah. There, there's no solution. There's no stopping the grief. There's no advice that you could ever give to make it all go away. Right. But you can be there. I mean, we cry for a reason. I mean, mm -hmm. we're human. <laughs> That's part of our expression, mm -hmm. right? Okay, well, let's let's move on to uh, talking about, since you, we can't resist, okay? You, you were a writing teacher, <laughs> and some of our listeners are, are writers. Okay. So we would like to talk a little bit about how you would advise writers when they are um, thinking about approaching a memoir. What are some, some great ideas that you can give them? Because you said a moment ago there was no ending, and that's, for example, one of the things that most memoirists will struggle with. Well, I'm still alive, right? So where do I stop? Right. Um, but if you were in a room full of uh, first-time writers who wanted to approach memoir, what would you say to them? What, what advice? Well, I think, you know, writing is a process. So as I told my students every time I got up in front of the classroom, just write. And so you... You could begin a scene, and it could have little meaning, but more, the more you process that scene, the more you can, you know, eke out the best bits of it. And then, so that's what I would do. I would write a short scene, and then I would highlight the words. And then I would take those words, and I would make a sentence or a paragraph out of them. And then I would elaborate. And then a new thought would form. But I couldn't have had that second thought if I didn't initially put down the first thoughts and just write. So, so you can't just sit down and write your story. It has to come very slowly. And, and it is a very, you know, it's a delicate process. But once you have a good scene, you know it. And that leads to a second scene. Wait a minute, I can go from my sister 
to my brother, right? Or whatever it is you're trying to say. I mean, you, it's your memoir, so you have certainly a scope of what you want to say. But putting it down and seeing it and unfolding it and unwrapping it, that's what makes it a good story, a good scene. Well, did, did you, because very often in memoir we deal with adversity, not always, but very often, did you struggle to remember the details that you finally did put into the book? Because I, I think sometimes when we're, especially with the scenario that you painted, it's such a shocking moment that for the brain to process in the actual moment that these horrible things are happening, I don't, we, we tend to forget, right? I, I do see that you wrote something about how you were trying to move upwards away from the point of where you were getting the news and 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 and, and it's it's so what i'm saying is i think it's really difficult to get that to get to those points because when you're in the moment of shock and adversity you you get fuzzy like your brain just mm -hmm. sort of all your emotions take over so what did you do to access that when you say process is is that what you mean it doesn't mean that you have to go at it again because the emotional core of the memory gets in the way of what the writer needs to write? Yes, you have to get to the core of it, and, and that's a very good point, because you can put down a scene of what happened, but you have to, you have to unwrap it until you get to the very barest, very emotional, soul-searching part of it, and you have to put everything down. Nothing is too little or unimportant. Everything leads to another thought. So if you put down the very worst that you can think of, you don't have to put it in your book, but it gives you the ability to take from it and to move on to something else. But if you don't write it all, then you don't have a basis. You have no way to go with it. Okay. And how often should people write? Is it is memoir different than other types of writing? Should you take a break? Should you just plow ahead and... and try and get past the emotional content? I don't, I don't think you want to get past the emotional part of it. That's, right. that's what it's all about. I think as I, I mean, Diane and I are both memoirists and I think, I know for myself, I tend to run away from it when I can. <laughs> I don't know that Diane does, but I know I have on occasion run away from the writing because it was so difficult to, yeah. to face. But once you face the truth and that's what's on that page, right. it gives you strength. Have you been able to reread your own work? Because there are chapters I've written that I cannot read again. What I do, I'm guilty of this, is I listen to it because the recording was so well done. Ah, great. So great. I, I sort of keep that in my ear. Okay. <laughs> and you're okay my with pod. it? Okay. Yeah, I just switch to different chapters. Okay. Anything else, Diane? Uh, do tell us about uh, where the book is available and in the different forms it's available so that people can have the experience of, re of reading or listening. Or yes. Well, um, Life, Life Detonated is available in hardcover through Barnes & Noble and Amazon and all book dealers, all booksellers, all libraries. It's available in um, video. Not video, audio. Audio. Sorry. <laughs> That's coming available. next. <laughs> we'll see. Audio is out there. It's it's actually doing very well, and an actress um, took the took the role of of a narrator, and she did a wonderful job. Wonderful. And you have a website for listeners if you can. The spell website your name is KathleenMurrayMoran.com. Okay, you're gonna have to spell it for them. Sorry. <laughs> well, you know what? I'll put it in the show notes. It is a okay. long name. 
Wait a minute, you said videos coming next. Is there interest in uh, making a film? Well, I've had a few bites, but nothing yet. Yeah, that's the way it goes. Yeah, that's, that's it could typical. take a while. Yeah, it's typical. I did get a trip to Hollywood out of it. That's okay. <laughs> Hang in there. Hang but in there. They haven't bitten yet, so it we'll can, see. It can come. That's great. All right, well, now we're going to move on to our On the Hook segment. This is when we invite our show guests to read aloud from their work. So we will invite you, Kathleen, to please tell us uh, what you're reading from, and we'll give you the, the mic. Life Detonated, The True Story of a Widow and Hijacker, Chapter 1, September 11th, 1976. I was lying perfectly still in a lavender-scented bath, thinking about the man who would slip into bed with me in another hour, run his hand down my back until I turned around, show me that sheepish grin, and kiss me with those lips that tasted like lucky strikes and smelled like the night air. I traced the constellation of freckles along my chest that he would outline with his fingers after we make love. This is a special report from CBS News. TWA Flight 355 to Chicago, carrying 93 passengers and crew, has been hijacked. I opened my eyes to hear the 11 o'clock news coming from our bedroom. Shortly after takeoff from New York's LaGuardia Airport, the aircraft was commandeered by a Croatian and his American wife. They claimed to have a bomb on board the plane and a second device located in New York City. I stood up, grabbed a towel, and ran into the bedroom. The camera left Walter Cronkite and panned Grand Central Station, and the most familiar face in the world to me came into focus my husband, Brian, in a Kevlar vest, bomb squad written on the back. Bath water dripped onto the rug as I stared at the tiny black and white TV. The scene panned across a row of 25-cent luggage lockers, the doors torn off their hinges, to Brian, lifting a shopping bag from inside one of the lockers. The white Macy's bag looked harmless. NYPD uniforms crowded around as Brian placed the bag on top of the bomb blanket and clipped the ends together. The camera followed them to the disposal truck parked outside Grand Central, where they disappeared from my view. Backing away from the TV, I sat on the bed, holding the towel in a tight ball. Stay, t stay calm, I told myself. Brian worked hundreds of bomb cases. All of them were dangerous. He always assured me he never took risks. Don't panic. Wait for him to call. But without knowing why, this time felt different. Down the hall in the glow of the tiny nightlife, our four-year-old son Keith slept. His sheets tangled around his legs, his forehead damp from the heat our ceiling fan did little to ease. Chris, the baby, was snuggled at the top of his crib, his hands under his chin as though in prayer. I stood in the doorway watching them sleep, listening to them breathe. Back in the bedroom, the hijacking was still unfolding on the TV. It was almost midnight. The news should have been over. Brian should have been on his way home. I crawled into bed shivering despite the day's heat and reminded myself the bomb squad had lost two men in, in its entire history, and that was back in 39 at the World's Fair. I looked over at the dress shirts in Brian's closet lined up like mock military soldiers his wingtips polished, waiting for their rotation, 
come home, I whispered into the dark. When I closed my eyes, I saw that Macy's shopping bag with its cheerful red star. I woke to red lights flashing off our bedroom walls. I could almost feel them crawling across my face. I thought I heard the swishing of clothes, the soft drop of rubber soled shoes. The clock said 4 a.m. When I pulled back the curtains, I saw a police car scattered along the street below. Doors left ajar. Red lights moved in unrelenting slow circles. The doorbell echoed up the stairs, a hesitant sound, like the person standing at the door didn't really mean to ring it. I felt I might be sick. This isn't happening. I looked back at the unmade bed. If I just crawl back in bed and bring the boys with me. But the doorbell rang again this time persistent, and I was propelled to the stairs looming menacingly below me. I heard the doorknob rattle, leaned against the wall and let it hold me up as I inched toward the door. Kathy, it's Charlie, open the door, please. He sounded like he had been asking for a long time. The doorknob didn't seem to work and I wasn't sure which way to turn the lock. When I finally opened it, I found Charlie standing in front of two men in police uniform. His blue eyes reminded me of Brian's, and when he looked up, his eyes were haunted, terrified. We lost him. I shivered uncontrollably. No. I shook my head. No. My legs wouldn't work. No. I looked past Charlie into the street, ringed with flashing lights and uniforms. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review. It'll help us keep bringing you great content. For show notes, upcoming events, and to participate in the Brooklyn Writers Project community, head on over to our website at www.brooklynwritersproject.com. Questions or comments? Send them to contact at lifelinespodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. Lifelines, the books podcast has been brought to you by the Brooklyn Writers Project. Music for this podcast has been provided by Anthony Nuda of Noble Sense Productions.